Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of DutchCast, the podcast about anything and everything collegiate. I'm your host Larkin McKay and in today's episode we have with us Dr. Keller. Dr. Keller is the head of the classics department here at Collegiate and I'm actually in his Latin class this semester. Uh, so just to begin, Dr. Keller, why don't you give us some personal background, uh, how long you've been at Collegiate, where you went to college, uh, pets, how you get to school. Uh, I've been at Collegiate since January of 2006, so that's 17 plus years. I was brought in by my co-author, Stephanie Russell, who had been talking about Collegiate for many years before I got here, when I was busy teaching university. And uh, I eventually decided I wanted to be in New York. I did not want to be where I was, and uh, an opportunity opened up and allowed me to come here. I, I did my undergraduate work at Columbia. I was a wayward student then, but I got serious toward the end. And uh, my graduate work at Princeton, that's where I got my PhD. Uh, and how do I get to school every day? Yeah. Uh, I actually drive my wife and daughter to Chapin from the far west side where we live. And then my son and I come in together. My son is a Dutchman in the second grade, finishing up second grade, soon to be a third grader. So um, this year, at any rate, I've driven or been driven by my wife because sometimes it goes the other way around. She drops my son and me off, and then she takes my daughter and goes to Chapin. Yeah. Um, so I guess my, my first question for you is, what made you choose a career in the classics? Like, what stood out to you? <laughs> I would guess that it chose me. Um, I, uh, I had no background in high school. I, I had a background uh, as a reader, uh, as a, what we used to call a bocher boy, um, somebody who studied in, in, well, the equivalent of Talmud Torah or something else like that, which is four days of um, Talmud after school, which I did until I was 13. And, uh, but I didn't have any experience with Latin or Greek. I, I, I ended up with a book at the end of my freshman year that was written all in Greek, and I thought just for fun I would learn Greek in the summer. I didn't have time to, but the introduction was Latin, so I, I decided to study Latin that summer. I, I was doing surgery research in the afternoon and, and uh, studying Latin in the morning at the University of Minnesota. And uh, what happened uh, was I got back to school as a chemistry major at Columbia my sophomore year, and now able to take a second year college course. And I had an extraordinary teacher. So the right answer to the question ultimately is that I had at least two extraordinary teachers in classics who opened up the world of classics to me. Um, and I meant what I said when I said it chose me. I, I had a knack for reading, but I had never seen languages or authors who worked with such precision uh, and profundity of thought. And uh, it had the additional advantage of being not part of the Judeo-Christian world, which at the time when I started, I had zero interest whatsoever. So it was terrific to move to a world where a lot of the sort of ethical quandaries of the present were gone. Um, So that's how it happened to me. You know, these incredible teachers. That teacher, that first teacher was named Steele Commager, C-O-M-M-A-G-E-R. And his his father was a famous historian, but Commager was just off the charts, funny and and clever and knowledgeable. And he just, you know, he turned me into wanting to be a classicist overnight.
would you would you say that he was your mentor? Do you have like someone specific that? Well, like, the, I, he was in those early years the person that I most relied on. But then I met another man who, as it turned out, had also been Dr. Russell's teacher, the co-author on the textbooks. Um, he was my mentor, and I, I spent. I met him in 1980 when I was still at Columbia, and he was at NYU and at the New School. And uh, we began reading together one-on-one in, in the fall of 81, and I, I read with him probably every week for the next 10 or 15 years, even after I became a professor and was wandering around the country. We would, we would meet, but mostly when I was in the New York area. And we would read whatever I wanted to read. He would be interested in it, and we would read for three or four hours in his tiny office at NYU. So he was the guy that really made a difference for me in the way I began to think about ancient literature. He, he formed it for me, and uh, he was the sounding board. Um, you, you mentioned the, uh, the textbook with uh, Dr. Russell. I know, I remember back in eighth grade when I had you for a trimester, you, uh, someone brought something up um, in one of the chapters that was like a typo or some error. Do you ever, I, I know it's the second edition of the textbook, do you ever like, um, do students ever bring up errors or fixes that you like implement into the next version? They regularly find little tiny typos. There's fewer and fewer of those. And, but you know, the press has not been great at fixing them between printings. They're often, we'll give them lists of corrections and they'll reprint without making them. Yeah. That just happened last year. So we just had a, little discussion with them about that. We are on the verge of uh, probably contracting for a third edition of the Latin book, Mm -hmm. so that may change again. The the students certainly helped uh, us when we moved from the first to the second edition. By that time, I was here teaching, and uh, um, we could see where we had failed in some middle chapters and needed to rearrange things to be more efficient and to be... uh, um, um, uh, in manageable chunks for students. So the students were a big part of the development of the second edition. Third edition, a little bit of you know what we see that students do continue to struggle with will make its way in, I think, to the third edition. Um, but we're always gaining from their insights and what they do and don't get. And yes, every once every you know every couple weeks they go, look, did you notice this? Usually we've noticed it, but sometimes we haven't. You know, collegiate students can be eagle-eyed. Yeah. I like that about them. Yeah. The, um, so, like, uh, I know classics are just Latin starts in, in eighth grade, and then there's the Greek system in upper school. But how, since you've been at Collegiate, has the, the coming, like, the newcoming eighth graders, have that, has that, uh, I guess, has it grown, shrunk? Do, are more people interested in Latin or less? We, we have more people interested than when I first came. But we also lowered the requirement in eighth grade and tried to divorce what had been a, a kind of system that had developed before I came where the, quote, smart kids, end quote, uh, did advanced math and Latin, and the others didn't. And it was a much smaller number. We, we thought that was a false dichotomy, that that idea was... You know, one of those ideas which you know that collegiate students can generate. Oh, he's smart, he's not. You know, the way you, you're all watching each other. We wanted to undo that, and we slightly lowered the requirement for being able to begin it. 
Um, it's is it a B? A B it's like now. A B in language. It yeah. used to be a B plus. Um, and I think what we've tried to do is is recognize that we have a lot to teach eighth graders, and there's some talk that it might turn into seventh graders too, uh, about language in general that's helpful. And even if you don't want to go on and do Latin and Greek for a long time, a little time in the middle school would be worth a lot. So it has increased. I mean, I think we have 35 kids in, in Latin in eighth grade right now, which is the majority of the, of the middle school. So uh, I guess the next question, um, I know you teach uh, some religion classes or like philosophy classes. Uh, so if you could teach any subject other than uh, like, or I guess if you could add in uh, a department or a course, not just a semester course, but like an actual full-fledged with real resources and like a, just a new thing that you could teach, what would you teach? Oh, I, I don't even know if I can answer that. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, it's enough for me to just keep teaching what I teach. I have added in two or three religion classes in the last few years, and I'd like to continue refining those. Um, you know, I think my perspective on that problem or that, I that question is, is, uh, is shaped by how I feel you all already seem to do way too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, collegiate kids, you know, will... They're like dogs with a bone, you know, they'll chase just about anything. So if we gave you some other line of ethics or philosophy or whatever, you guys would try to fit that into your already over full schedules. So that, that shapes my, my response to that question. I, I do like the religion classes. I like the freedom of them, and I like the being able to teach students who aren't just students of Latin and Greek. Um, you know, I think ethics and philosophy classes have a place and I, uh, in the collegiate curriculum. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I'd love to teach a linguistics class for a whole year if I were allowed to do that, but I don't see how uh, we could ever fit that in. But it would be fun to teach linguistics. I used to teach linguistics. And um, that's probably the one thing I'd like to, to see added. I think, I think uh, linguistics, that is. I, I think that the religion uh, classes, which I hope expand and are not just taught by us in the classes department, but by others in the school, I think those are wonderful opportunities for you all to begin exploring uh, ideas in a different context that an English department, a history department, or a classics department can do. So I do think of those courses as primarily about ethics and philosophy, and I do think collegiate thrives and is at its best as an, a liberal arts institution, understood broadly, understood to include sciences, understood to, I mean, we're not a techie school. I know that tech is the wave of the future, and I know that that more and more people will, will want to teach and study those things. I, I think of them as simpler than the things that we're trying to teach. And I think of them as not necessarily needing to be in the curriculum. But I do think that we want to get you thinking about big questions um, and where you stand relative to them as students and as young people coming up. Uh, so I'd like to see more of those kinds of courses. But a full year course, you know, don't you think the 
the, the curriculum is pretty darned full right now, and yeah. don't most people take too many classes, and aren't people coming close to, you know, coming apart as he seems? Uh, that's a rhetorical question. I, I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. Yeah. So. The, um, I, I think I, I'm under the impression that a lot of the philosophical work has, I guess, not, under, not already been done, but a lot of the, like, modern philosophy or just traditional philosophy that has a lot of impact and that's like universally recognized is more contained in classical literature or more like there you have like modern philosophers or renaissance philosophers but you also have i think a lot of the fundamental uh like philosophy ideas are way back in like ancient greek or ancient roman culture but i'm not is yeah, that is that correct yes and no the answer to that is yes and no i mean um philosophy comprises many different uh, sub subfields and sub-varieties. You know, the 20th century was well known for uh, it, the increase in the philosophy of language. Um, um, and there are a whole wide variety of people who have tried to, to um, address those kinds of issues. I think it's probably useful to think of at least a couple of uh, dichotomies. There's classical political philosophy, ancient political philosophy, which is not to be understood as in the narrow sense of po political, but really as in philosophy about the city, philosophy about how human beings interact, um, how they do or don't develop moral or ethical codes. Uh, those questions are the ones that sort of obsessed Plato and Aristotle, and those two set in motion a huge, broad swath of, of philosophical debates, most of which are, as they should be, unresolved. Uh, there is, a, on the other hand, a tradition that one might begin with something like Machiavelli called modern political philosophy. You could, you could choose other starters. You could choose Hobbes or somebody. Um, and, and these questions, you might say that the ancient world has a tendency to try to look at what man could be in its best light and modern political philosophy more at how we really are, <laughs> and, and, and that tends to be more negative. That's a, highly simplistic, but I, at the very least, you, you need to have some idea of that division. So a lot of ancient texts and a lot of ancient authors began or, or, or set in motion uh, debates that could rage today and, and shift, and, and some people would say that their, their formulations are archaic and others would not. My therapist would say psychology has replaced a lot of philosophy. I would, yeah. I, I disagree with him, but we, we enjoy those conversations. Um, the, the other really big division in the present day is between what's usually called analytical philosophy and continental philosophy. So analytical philosophy, again, I'm being simple, simplifying everything here, it is a kind of philosophy that's grounded in uh, logic, the possibility of making statements that are true that can or cannot be proved, um, that have a very, many analytic philosophers tend to look down their noses at, at ancient philosophers. Uh, and that, that movement has dominated uh, philosophical discourse in, in the Anglo-American schools. Continental philosophy is so-called because it's the continuation of philosophy as it used to be done and is largely based in the European continent. Uh, both of these conceptions, as I, just by the countries I've named and the places I've named, are obviously Western. 
uh, we, we don't have a tradition here of studying non-Western philosophical traditions, and there are such things. I know not enough about them to be a person who wants to be put in charge of them. But I do think that the ancient world often frames these really interesting questions about how we stand in regard to desire, how we stand in regard to death, our own mortality, how we stand in regard to what we think is good or just or beautiful. I think they do it in language that I find refreshingly simple. And, and so f for me, it, it, it was the way in which I first began to be able to think about these things. I don't think one just jumps into the deep end of the pool with this and feels comfortable, you start somewhere. And for me, the starting point in Plato was the right place to start. Um, uh, and it, it stays that way. And Plato is not a person who's doctrinal. He hasn't written out a series of rules and you know, <laughs> guidelines to live by. He, he has, however, raised any number of complex issues, including issues that uh, are now called philosophy of language, the difficulty of being able to use language accurately. Um, that continue to, to, to fascinate people who like this kind of stuff. You asked me what got me to classics. I think being able to talk about these kinds of issues in language that was not jargony, that, that uh, was self-conscious enough to know that just saying the words good, beautiful, and just is not that you, meaning that you've defined them at all, that they're really hard to define. Was my way into those philosophical questions. I continue to find that better than most other ways in. Because um, I guess my guess would be that those languages also were the way that they evolved and were formed because they were being used at the t at, a, at a time when, like this philosophy was occurring and like forming, or practicing philosophy was more like at a time when kind of like Plato was alive. It's it probably is more ingrained into the language and like how the language operates. You know, I think Athens, which is the center of the intellectual world for, for 150 years, um, the Western intellectual world, mm -hmm. is a strange and wondrous place. Uh, it's where you know, tragedy came into being, and comedy came into being, and indeed this kind of philosophy. Not all philosophy, there's Greek philosophy that predates Plato. Although, interestingly enough, we call most of that philosophy pre-Platonic, as if, you know, the turning point is so huge that every, you know, or pre-Socratic, actually, is the more common term, Socrates being the character and the teacher of Plato that Plato writes about. Um, I think things are much more alive then because of how strange that moment is in time. There are various moments where things seem to come together, and that happened in the world of Greek literature, Greek philosophy. Roman philosophy exists. It's real. It derives a lot from Greek. It, it, it comes at the end of a tradition of uh, ever bifurcating and changing uh, traditions that grew out of the Platonic school and the Aristotelian school and, and arrive in Rome and, and people write about these things. Uh, it's not as interesting to me, but they're, 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 their literature is. And, and the literature and philosophy are not so distinct in the ancient world. Maybe that, you know, talking and going on and on like this leads me to the right point, which is, you know, we live in a world of separated departments and 
notions of how do you approach things. You've got an English department, and you've got a French department, you've got a classics department, and you've got a philosophy department, political science department, all these different kinds of departments in colleges and, and also you know, secondary schools. It's much more blended in the ancient world. These things are not so doctrinal that people are living separately. And the result is that these ideas come up in different contexts, but the same ideas, and they seem to be interested in them. I like that very much, the sort of syncretic nature of the approach and the, the multifaceted nature of the approach to the same kinds of problems. So that also included art and how art tried to deal with these things and sculpture and so forth. Yeah, like uh, almost a less of a need for spe specialization, yeah. just like being able to handle it all at once. And yeah. The one way of putting it is the way Socrates seems to solve one of his problems, which is if he ever wanted to state something that, was, that would be absolutely true, he'd have to have perfect knowledge of all the parts and perfect knowledge of the whole, and he, he acknowledges that no human being can do that. Um, the scientific approach to things, as it is in the ancient world, attempts to have perfect knowledge of the parts or various parts. His own decision, Socrates' own decision, was to set aside uh, a search for perfection and prefer a kind of partial knowledge of the whole. So this is an admission in searching for the partial knowledge of the whole that he doesn't have perfect knowledge, that, that, that he isn't giving a full description. But he's attempting to talk about a unity or a whole rather than just discretized parts. And you know, this is the choice Socrates makes, and it's probably the one that I mimicked by becoming a classicist. Even in the world of classics, people specialize. I do poetry, I do prose, I do Greek, I do Latin. I tried as long as I could not to specialize. Um, and my dissertation was on uh, both a, a comic writer and Plato. So I was attempting to, to, to bridge that gap, too. Um, I don't know how successful I've been at any of that, but that, that's, those have been the questions that have pushed me. Um, so I guess to, to end this episode, uh, I do like a speed question round. Okay. So just short, uh, quick, yeah, yeah. fun questions. So, um, Rorschach test. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what is your favorite board game? Oh, I haven't played very many board games for a while, but I always liked Monopoly when I was a kid. Oh, I also liked Risk. Yeah. Right? I like Risk. Um, what, uh, what's your favorite movie? I don't have a favorite movie, but I, I love uh, lots of different kinds of movies. I, I, tend to, I tend to feel like I'm in a mood for a Kurosawa movie or I'm in a mood for an Antonioni movie. Or I'm not a big fan of the Marvel Universe movies, except <laughs> in the same way that I used to also like comic books. So I get it. You know, comic books are fun. Um, what's, what's your favorite place that you've ever visited? Probably Rome, um, although I have to say New Zealand's pretty cool, but Rome is endlessly interesting to me. So is Sicily. Naples is the coolest, scary place I've been. But yeah, I, I'm very fond of all those places uh, in Italy, I, I, I and Rome the most. I've probably spent 18, 19 months in Rome, and I still feel like I only know a little bit of it. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, when you run out of toothpaste, do you squeeze the tube or roll it up to get the last Ro bit of toothpaste? Roll it up. Roll, roll it up, yeah. 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 And that's what you got to do. And then you squeeze. You yeah. roll, and then you squeeze, right? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, so that just about concludes this episode of DutchCast. A big thank you to you for taking the time 
out of your day to come on the show. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you all very soon.